Hello, hello, and welcome to Art Pop Talk. I'm Bianca. And I'm Gianna. Alexa, play Twinkle Song from Miley and her dead pets. What does it mean? What does it mean? (laughs) (laughs) Well, today, we'll tell you what it means. It means that we are talking all about taxidermy? (laughs) A complex act of animal preservation used for art, trophies, history, and natural science. Continuing our Art Loween series, we are joined by Foster W. Krupp, a museum studies major, to talk about this history, but also the creep factor that taxidermy carries in its many different environments. This episode is going to get you fucking fucked up. So let's our pop talk about taxidermy. <laughs> hey guys. Hey, Bianca. Yo, yo, yo. Yo, yo, yo. So I need everyone to know, or at least I hope that some of the art pop tarts know, that Fucking Fucked Up is a song on Miley's album. And I know you love it when I explain my jokes, but that's as witty as I could try to be writing this (laughs) intro. (laughs) You know, it was good. I'm here for it. I want to get fucked up by some museum talk. (laughs) Well, I was trying to like find different titles and I was going to be like, Karen, don't be sad. Let's art pop talk. Like, I don't know. (laughs) And honestly, Bianca, I don't know if you noticed this, but I stopped writing captions for my Instagram posts because Mm -hmm. truly, I'm just, you know, I'm not a witty person. I would love to be a witty person, but I have to. I have to save my wittiness up for these intros now. Like, I have no more (laughs) wittiness to give to my own personal Instagram which I really don't even like give a shit about these days anyway so I've just stopped writing Instagram captions because I really want to like put the content where it's useful well you're doing a good job because I feel like every time you post something for our pop talk I'm like oh that's funny like I would have never fucking thought (laughs) oh I'm always just like here is today's episode (laughs) well can I tell you what I was going to write for our caption today when I posted the resources but I didn't because Well, because, you know, especially with today's content, like, (laughs) before we get into our discussion with Foster, I just need you all to know that taxidermy is such a large part of my museum trauma. Like, I really have some, like, I am really fucking fucked up because of taxidermy. (laughs) Wait, that could be the title of the episode. (laughs) I am fucked fucked up. up I am not doing well. It really is true. And so I was going to be like, check out these images that Foster shared with us because I'm too scared to look up my own images. <laughs> but I I felt as though I wanted you guys to listen to the episode before I, you know, gave you a little taste of my museum trauma. Yeah, that's good. We can, we can talk about that. I actually, whenever we were talking with Foster, whenever we did the recording, Afterwards, we were saying we may need to do like a call out and have you guys submit stories about your museum trauma because I feel like there's some good ones. Foster had good ones. Gianna, you have good ones. I have some. Yeah, the dinosaur museum one. I'll never forget it. Do you want to tell them about the dinosaur museum one now or do we want to wait till after art news? I feel like we should wait for the museum trauma episode. Like maybe I want to save it for the episode and save it all up. Oh, God. Yeah. So one episode of just trauma. How is that, that different from any other episode we do? <laughs> I suppose. Well, this one's very. This one is a little touchy for you. Yeah, this one is just. Uh, yeah, I. I won't. I guess if we're gonna do this episode, which it sounds like, you know, we should do. We'll take a poll later. I, I won't tell the whole story, but I'll just say, if any of the charts have been to Willow Rock. Like, if you know what that is. In Oklahoma. In Oklahoma. It's a historical site here, and it fucking sucks. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say If you're afraid of taxidermy, that. like Gianna is, don't, don't go. <laughs> don't go. <laughs> Bianca, I was also so pissed because mom came over to give me some furniture yesterday mm-hmm. and she asked me what the episode was going to be about and i <laughs> said it was going to be on taxidermy and she was like oh are you gonna be okay and i said no i'm not gonna be okay <laughs> and 
we had this whole conversation where we had to go down memory lane. And I was like, how did you not know that's the only thing Willow Rock has to offer? And she was like, well, I don't know. They have other things. I said, no, they don't. She was like, I they do have- remember eating a hot dog there. She said they have a doll collection. They have an airplane collection. I said, oh, really do they? Because all I remember is the big giant elephant head on the wall. Like, Thank you yeah, for Actually, that's all me. I remember too. And the hot dog. I remember definitely eating a hot dog. Ugh, I remember like a taxidermy uh, bison that they turned into a trash can. Do you remember that? You would like, uh-huh. like uh-huh. put the trash like... It was like a suction thing. It was like in its mouth, and then it would like take it away. Do you remember oh, that? No. I'm like, no, that's disgusting. That. So freaking don't go to Willow Rock. <laughs> <laughs> We're not advocating. For- <laughs> not advocating. <laughs> You're this. gonna be okay. You know what? I'm not. <laughs> well, should we should we switch it up and get into art news a little bit? Give you a little breather. Yeah, yeah we should. Sorry, guys. <laughs> for today's art news. I thought it would be fun to piggyback off of our episode from last week and talk about the continuation of a beloved cult classic series, which is Chucky. So Chucky has come back with the same charm and from the original creator. Charm? Yeah, have you? Same charm? I've never seen Chucky. I'll get into it a little bit. I've never seen like, I haven't seen a lot of the movies. I haven't seen Chucky all the way through, but it's like humorous and like very like, witty and like Chucky's kind of like a beloved character it's interesting so the creator Don Mancini is a part of this new series um, which is taking form in this episodic format so critics say that the series stays very true to the spirit of the movies putting the focus on the young cast at its core while also making room for some familiar folks from Chucky's past also including a detailed backstory this time of Charles Lee Ray as Chucky was known before he used black magic to transfer his dying spirit into a doll. So one of the reasons Chucky is a cult classic is because of the continuation of this character over the course of different movies and the kitsch factor of the murderous doll who is humorous, manipulative, but has likable and dislikable traits. Also, there are friendships, family, and gender dynamics that the film series has explored and is continuing to explore with this new series. So to quote Mancini, he says, One of my favorite dialogue exchanges in the show is when Chucky is reading Jake's diary. Jake is our main character who is in high school, he's being bullied, he's struggling with his sexuality, and he finds Chucky at a yard sale. And he's going to use Chucky to make like a creepy art project, and then he changes his mind, which I think is like (laughs) key to the plot. (laughs) Chucky says to Jake, quote, you should just call it Devin, Devin, Devin. And Jake is embarrassed. So Chucky says, you know, I have a queer kid. And Jake is like, what? And you're cool with it? And Chucky says, well, I'm not a monster, Jake. I like to think that over the years and the films that we've brought dimension to, Chucky, in a somewhat unusual way, I mean, we've seen his home life, his family life, his difficult marriage, and he had a gender-fluid child, and he struggled with that in the seat of Chucky, but at the end came to accept it. So, you know, he's a sort of in a good position to become Jake's seemingly ally in that way because he's not a bigot. He's not homophobic. He's not racist. He's just a psychopath who doesn't discriminate. <laughs> He'll kill anybody. <laughs> So I wanted to talk about this new development because Chucky is such a huge franchise and it has such a dedicated following that it does hit all these factors that we talked about last week that I was kind of kicking myself that I actually didn't bring it up. Um, So you can watch this new series, which is called Just Chucky, and it's showing on Sci-Fi and USA Network. So Bianca, you've you've never seen any of the Chucky's, never seen like a scene from it or nothing? Um, Chucky, I think, used to play on TV. Like, I think Chucky was kind of one of those TV movies, because again, like, we didn't have cable, and so I feel like I remember, like, watching scenes from it, but, like, so Chucky's, the doll is is married? So there's, like, another Chucky movie that's, 
that's called like the bride of Chucky. And then there's one with his like son. And it's like the seed of Chucky. So yeah, it like through these like dolls, you like explore Chucky's like family dynamics. And then <laughs> in this like comeback series, a big part of it, I, I don't know which Chucky was the last movie, but apparently mm-hmm. our director had teased that there that there was going to be more to come. And he did kind of tease this series. So this also has been kind of a long time waiting for some people. But mm-hmm. one of the things that we are promised is also these beloved like doll characters to also come back in the series too. Okay. Have you seen them? I've seen like bits and bits and pieces of them. Like I, I feel as though Chucky was one of those movies that was kind of always playing on TV all the time. And it was one of those things where even though I was super freaked out as a kid, I couldn't look away. Like, same thing with that other movie where it's like a creepy toy story where the dolls come to life. That movie was always playing on TV. I don't know what that is. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, my God. I don't know if that was a kid's movie or not, but I don't know. It felt like it had like a darker vibe to it than Toy Story, but that one creeped me out too. <laughs> That's funny. Anyways, I, I, I can't remember, but um, I kind of wish this new series was a little bit more accessible. I don't yeah. have access to either of these things, these platforms, but I would be interested in, in kind of watching them. I feel as though as an adult, Chucky could be like a cult classic horror movie that me, a scaredy cat, could handle. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I think something about his his voice, like, I can't. To me, you know, it's funny because I think his voice is so purposeful in the fact that it's not super creepy. It's more, like, sarcastic. Yeah, I don't know. It's like, it's... I don't know, but maybe I'll maybe I'll give it a try. I'm not going to watch it by yeah. myself for the first time, so I have to wait. <laughs> if someone does has access to it, or if someone is watching it, let us know because I was interested in the plot line and how mm-hmm. our main character Jake is being bullied by his peers, and so I think my understanding was like Chucky is trying to convince him to essentially like murder or like get his <laughs> you know his um, bullies <laughs> back, but mm-hmm. then. You're, and then you think like, oh, like Chucky is like his friend, and that's that's what Chucky does. He befriends mm-hmm. you, but then he manipulates you to like do all these like psychopathic things. But then these bullies start to be humanized, and then you're like, oh wait, no, like don't murder people. <laughs> so I, I do think that um, that it's interesting that it's this particular series is taking place with like a younger crowd and high school mm-hmm. dynamics. So it should be interesting if anyone has access to it. Um, let us know, but I just thought a good kind of art news story to piggyback off of from, from last week. Cool. Well, should we get into today's art pop talk? Today, we are so excited to introduce to you my friend Foster W. Krupp. Foster is an emerging museum student and researcher. He graduated from Westchester University in 2021 with a Bachelor of Arts in Anthropology and minors in Art, History, and Museum Studies. Currently, Foster is doing a Master's in Public Administration program at Westchester University. His primary research interests are taxidermy, habitat and anthropology dioramas, and museum commercialization, which is so fascinating. I want to hear more about that. Foster will be presenting Salvaging Anthropology Dioramas at the American Anthropological Association annual meeting this November. So we're going to take a little break, and whenever we come back, we will be joined by Foster W. Krupp. everyone. We are now joined by our very special guest this week, Foster W. Krupp. Hello, Foster. Thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be on the show. Yay. Can you introduce yourself to the Art Pop-Tarts and tell us a little bit about who you are? Yeah, I'm I'm Foster W. Krupp. I'm a pretty uh, young scholar student. I just uh, graduated from undergrad at Westchester University with my 
uh, Bachelor of Arts in Anthropology, but then I also minored in Art History and Museum Studies. And then just this fall, I started my master's program, still at Westchester, uh, doing public administration. And I'm hoping to pursue a career in the museum field uh, or museum administration at some point down the line. So many different things. Foster, you're clearly a person that wears many different hats in the museum world. So we're really excited to have you on today, particularly because this is a subject that I am... I have a hard time looking at and analyzing in the visual world because of the creep factor. And I I truthfully um, have a hard time analyzing this work, which is why we need your expertise today. But I'm hoping that you can first off talk to us a little bit about your experience with your research on taxidermy. Yeah, so uh, my main research focus is definitely taxidermy, uh, particularly in the habitat diorama uh, context. So uh, I, you know, my earliest memories really are going to the Museum of Natural Sciences in Houston, Texas, and looking at the taxidermy ducks and like wondering how they did it. Like it was just like such a wonderful <laughs> experience for me, which I, I know it's not the same for everyone else. <laughs> but I was like, wow, that's so cool. And, you know, seeing the animal, you know, frozen forever in time, like it was just a really you know, it was something I thought about a lot as a kid and, you know, ended up in museum studies and research. And uh, when I was in high school, you know, I kind of knew this was what I wanted to do. So my co-op was working at my local children's museum. So I actually helped them clean taxidermy for, uh, in high school. And that was kind of my first like hands-on mm-hmm. experience, you know, working with taxidermy. And then you know, in undergrad, I was a co-curator at the Westchester University Museum of Anthropology and Archaeology and had the great opportunity to co-curate three exhibits, two of which I got to work uh, with taxidermy and animal specimens. Wow, that is fantastic. I had known a little bit about your background just on the research side of things, but I didn't know that you have actually been a part of the physical process of what entails taxidermy and how that actually comes about. So, so that is wild. Just like hearing about someone else's kind of first memory of a museum too. I I like, I feel like Gianna and I just, I guess like naturally gravitate toward that, toward that art lens, but it's really interesting to actually hear people in a different kind of museum system, like talk about their first experience with that other type of museum display and that type of like curation. That is so interesting. Yeah. I'm a natural history museum guy, so, but I love <laughs> art museums too. <laughs> So um, I want to talk about the word taxidermy a little bit. Can you tell us, like, does taxidermy literally mean skin art or arrangement? And then how did taxidermy actually come about? It seems like such an unnatural thing, even though it belongs in natural history museums. It feels very weird that things literally frozen like that are so often natural. (laughs) Yes, yeah, so the etymology of the word uh, taxidermy is like the arrangement of skin. And, you know, taxidermy, from the, you know, what we think of when we think of taxidermy is relatively recent in human history. You know, the you know, age of exploration and colonization, you know, that's when people started to get interested in taking these birds from the new world, bringing them back to their cabinets of curiosity and kind of keeping them forever because... It's a lot easier to get a dead bird skin over the ocean than an alive bird. So, and, you know, because the Cabinet of Curiosities is kind of our proto-museum, one of our proto-museums, you know, taxidermy has its kind of roots, you know, intertwined with the museum itself. But uh, taxidermy, I think, is one of the, the, you know, it's part of our conscious a little bit and, you know, not always in like a comfortable way. You know, I think the you know, less museumological, you know, trophy hunting and that kind of stuff is, you know, what some people think of when they hear that word taxidermy. Mm -hmm. So, you you know, maybe you're thinking of, you know, Gaston from Beauty and the Beast and his wall of antlers and your head (laughs) versus, you know, the habitat dioramas I study. And it's it's funny that you bring that up because regards to those different kind of environments like the trophy, I might actually skip to this next question, Bianca, is that taxidermy animals are categorized 
differently based on their usage or environment. At least that's how I understand them. So a specimen is an exact replica of an animal as it appears in the wild. But as you said, we do have that example of the trophy. That's something for sport. But are there other qualifying categories in which taxidermy is used? I think something in a more like modern context, as you just said, taxidermy is something that is relatively new. And I think through my, you know, basic kind of sense of research, it is something that is being explored in other areas. And something that Bianca and I have looked at is a little bit of death portraiture and how people are, uh, you know, freezing these moments in time for their beloved pets, which is quite interesting. Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct in your research. Uh, You know, the idea of the, the specimen, you know, that's our very museum oriented, you know, idea of taxidermy. And, you know, that's maybe where your study skins come into play where, you know, you just have an animal skin preserved and you're just stuffing it kind of with stuffing essentially. But then you kind of have the, the habitat groups, which is like the American term for like when you have these dioramas that have a taxidermy animal in it, and then you have a background painting and then you have these, you know, artificial foreground elements to kind of create the environment where the animal lives and, you know, that's where, you know, Carl Akeley and kind of the modern, one of the modern fathers of taxidermy, you know, where he would rather than just stuffing an animal with stuffing, you know, to have like the shape of an animal, he actually sculpted the veins and muscles of the animal and, you know, created these like, you know, under the skin, you have like this base where you can put the skin on and then you have a more realistic looking animal that you can pose in a more dynamic way. So that's kind of the where the museum st- uh, stops in terms of where the, you know, you have, then you go into like the trophies and, you know, definitely pet taxidermy is definitely one of the more, you know, interesting sides of it where you have a lot of people who are, you know, very interested in preserving their pet. But with taxidermy, you're not necessarily making a hundred percent accurate reproduction of the living animal you know, it's almost a caricature, you know, you're trying your very, very best to recreate something that you really can't recreate uh, now that it's dead. And then, you know, the other interesting kind of direction of taxidermy, you know, you have these, you know, uh, amphimorphized, you know, like Walter Potter's uh, rabbit school, where, you know, you're taking real animals and you're putting them in human situations. So he was a British taxidermist, Mm -hmm. Victorian era, who, you know, created these kind of fantasy scenes where he put rabbits in human situations. Whoa. And, you know, Dr. Seuss with his, you know, he making fake animals with real animal parts, you know, so there's all kinds of different directions taxidermy has gone from just even an art history perspective. Wow, that's really wild. And it's interesting, too, that you, um, just the verbiage, I guess, that you're using to talk about it and, like, the word specimen where in art history I'm so used to saying object and so like I don't know as I'm thinking about the like I'm thinking about them as like pieces in a collection so I have a lot of questions about like how taxidermy is understood through that museum studies lens and I liked what you were saying too about um that sense of like artistry and that like that idea of like having this um this sense of of like being able to sculpt a body that's not yours like even if it's an animal body that's interesting and like even like thinking about like kind of like modern day mortuary practices like painting skin and and what um different people do at funeral homes to to like preserve that body and make it look as like lively and realistic as possible so i think that's like an interesting echo I guess to kind of like human death portraiture but yeah can you talk about that a little bit more like is it considered an art form like what does the like scientific but historical process look like or like how are they combined yeah I think the thing that makes uh taxidermy interesting is it's both a science and an art at the same time and you do have kind of this overlap where uh you're creating a scientific representation of an animal you know, but you're also creating an artistic representation of an animal. So I think that's why a lot of these, you know, habitat dioramas that, you know, still exist at American Museum of Natural History, the Field Museum, you know, uh, Los Angeles County Natural History, like there's a lot of 
these habitat dioramas that are still around, you know, almost a hundred, hundred or over a hundred years later, because there's such like great works of science and art kind of at their best, you know, at this early part of the 20th century, when these uh, dioramas and taxidermy and the museum setting really started to emerge, you know, it was kind of before, you know, color photography, color film were, you know, something that people had access to. And, you know, it was before mm. people were necessarily, you know, traveling to parts of Africa, parts of Asia, you know, even parts of the United States where these, you know, big animals and these really awesome natural habitats, you know, still exist. So you have to think like that maybe these people who were visiting, you know, New York history's natural history museum, Chicago's natural history museum, were maybe not ever going to be at a point in their life where they were going to go to Africa and see a zebra or see a, elephant or lion in its natural habitat. So this is the closest that they are ever going to get to experiencing that. So that's this kind of interesting, you know, history scientific lens, but then it's also only possible with the artistry of, you know, these artists who are employed by museums to construct these. Yeah. It's interesting to like hear you talk about the coming about of taxidermy and how I think so often when we view these, Bianca, I want to say objects too, but when we view these specimens or even these like trophies, even in a museum or historical like setting, even in Oklahoma, I have visited a historical site where it feels very much like I am just looking at a, a trophy case of taxidermy animals. But you viewed them in the sense that, oh, like you just said, we have to look at how this was for, you know, people who might have not had the means to travel so they they can share it, their experience in these different kind of, um, I don't know, immersive different ways. But to piggyback off of Bianca's question, I really am ignorant to how, especially like natural history museums today, acquire taxidermy animals or I mean, and really to hear you say that you've been a part of the taxidermy process under kind of a museum umbrella, I think is really interesting because I'm so ignorant to how do they acquire taxidermy animals or are they doing the process themselves or is that something that's still necessary? Like, do we need to keep continuing to taxidermy like animals that we do have the means to travel to go see? I'm also curious about that, like, ethical, moral standpoint, like, in today's terms, how that relates to Gianna's question, like, as a as a historian and a museum scientist, like, are there different kind of, like, moral and ethical standards that are in place today as far as practices go? Yeah, so, I mean, with the, the big museums in the United States, you know, when they, you know, first started to develop taxidermy, you know, displays and habitat dioramas and that such, you know, it really was a bunch of old white men getting on a boat, going to Africa or getting on a plane, going to Africa and, you know, just going wild and shooting a mom and shooting a dad and shooting the children. So you kind of have the whole representation. I mean, that, you know, Theodore Roosevelt, you know, went on, I think three different expeditions for the Smithsonian Institute after his presidency. And, you know, was very much involved in New York's expeditions as well. with Carl mm-hmm. Avery. And so, I mean, I think one of the things to consider, you know, you know, from the ethical you know, standpoint is that, you know, it was a different time and people had different attitudes about how the natural world should be protected and preserved. Um, You know, I think a lot of the scientists and artists who were working on taxidermy and natural history museums and exhibits at the time thought that they were doing the right thing because, you know, they were bringing a piece of this wild to people who weren't going to see it. And they were also you know, preserving these specimens, you know, in the museums at a time when museums were all collecting still actively, which I think a lot of museums, especially natural history museums, aren't necessarily, you know, collecting taxidermy specimens anymore. You know, they're just kind of working with what they have. You know, another avenue is certainly, you know, the illegal wildlife trade when things get seized by that. They're usually end up in natural history museum collections, you know, to be safeguarded mm-hmm. and then potentially also be used in educational contexts rather than just sitting in government warehouses, you know, being confiscated. But um, in terms of like, I, you know, I think that I don't think in now where we are now, especially with climate change and with, you know, the deterioration of so many, you know, animal species and environments, I don't think it would be ethical to go out and, you know, create a new habitat diorama today, you know, if that involves you going and shooting animals. But I think that uh, 
protecting and preserving the ones we have is important. I think one of the things a lot of people don't realize when they're looking at habitat dioramas, especially, you know, the New York ones that I, I primarily study is that they are real places. And, you know, that every single one of these dioramas, you know, is a snapshot of what this, you know, environment looks like, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century. So, you know, at some point they may be our only record of, you know, what it would have looked like for a bunch of zebras and giraffes and Apache to be, you know, at a watering hole or, you know, what a bunch of lions and a pride would look like. So I think that's like a scary like idea to think about, but it's also, I think, one we have to think about, you know, with the way we are treating the natural world. Right, right. Because it's like we have these objects. So like acknowledging the traumatic history and like how these objects are sourced, but also we have them. So what's the alternative to just throw them away and to really like disrespect these bodies and these specimens in that way? Might as well. It, it learn about them and teach about the whole history. So that that's super interesting. So, I mean, one of the things that's also important to consider, you know, with this sort of thing with habitat dioramas is this diorama dilemma where, you know, there you have a piece of science, but you also have a piece of art. So you can't really take apart a habitat diorama and take one of the lions out and then just leave the rest because you have this kind of empty spot. So if you want to, you know, get rid of your dioramas, you're, you know, that's an ethical and, you know, I think a very logical decision for a lot of, you know, smaller institutions, but you're, you know, also destroying a piece of art too. So there's this kind of museum history, but also, you know, this artistic human history as well, that's destroyed when you, you know, change dioramas and you remove dioramas. So I think that's one of the things that a lot of museums are trying to figure out what to do with them because of the ethical questions they raise. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful way to put taxidermy in in terms of like the visual world or the art world for our listeners too. We talk about that so much. I mean, obviously there's a bunch of visual artworks that are super problematic or we don't love to learn about, but you know, they need to be preserved because otherwise it's just erasing history. So um, it's all one and the same. It's a lovely, (laughs) lovely field we are in, but um, I love that idea of like context, like shifting context for a natural history museum as well. Like obviously Gianna and I talk about that with art objects on the podcast, but exa- like what you were saying with climate change. I mean, I think that is a super fascinating way to recontextualize these like potentially problematic dioramas or like objects or specimens that you have in a collection like that. Like that idea of focusing on climate change is like horrifying, but also I think a really important contextual key that we can use to reevaluate objects like that. So Foster, I wanted to kind of transition and you may have listened to one of our earlier episodes for our last Artloween series where we did talk about the bodies exhibition and talking about the preservation of human bodies through what's called plastinization. So I know that the way those bodies are on display, preserving organs, is that is like a fundamental difference between plastinization and taxidermy. But again, through my very surface level research and in, in and learning about tanning and even how leather is made. I would like our listeners to have a little bit of technical knowledge on the differences between these types of exhibition spaces, but also the differences in the processes as well. Yeah. I mean, with body worlds and, you know, taxidermy animals that you might see at your local museum, I mean, the, you're exactly correct where it's the uh, pr- preservation of, you know, organs and like kind of the human, you know, internal systems rather than the human external systems and, you know, the skin with the, you know, your animal and taxidermy. So with taxidermy, you're, you know, the things, the parts of the body you can really preserve, you know, long periods of time for hundreds of years are the skin and fur and hooves and bones and stuff like that, teeth. But, you know, the internal organs are just not something that you're able uh, to preserve, you know, chemically like you do with the plasticization where you're, you know, essentially transforming the state of matter that the human specimens and, you know, the animal specimens too. I think Body Worlds has a horse, right? Yeah, I think they do have some animals, but this is maybe like a super kind of creepy question, but I think we're, we're also nearing these questions as we get into the creep factor. But reading so much about the process of taxidermy is essentially 
the amount of descriptions I read is, you know, the the person stretching the skin over the armature. And it, when I read those descriptions, what it made me think of, because I do listen to like my favorite murder podcast, is that serial killer that would like stretch human skin over like Ooh. lampshades and would make like purses or different like objects out of human skin. And it was wild. Like these descriptions feel so normal to read by like anthropologists or by museum studies people or people in in the art world but it really had this like super kind of morbid description that I was taken aback where I've read those descriptions in other very creepy ways and th- this is this is maybe a dumb question or an ignorant question but can we know that plastinization is a process but can human bodies turn into taxidermy bodies has a human body ever been on display through taxidermy yeah, uh, this is like the fun whole can of worms you can go into when you study taxidermy, but not very well. I mean, and part of that is because of the technical thing you were talking about with the stretching of human skin. You know, our skin isn't really, uh, you know, chemically or physically able to stretch and be preserved in a realistic looking way, the way an animal covered in fur can be preserved. And, you know, there's similar other animals that also kind of you have this difficulty with, with like rhinoceroses and hippopotamuses and, you know, the whales, like people have tried to taxidermy basically anything, but, uh, and then human taxidermy is interesting. Um, you know, it's unfortunately not really, you know, it's, it certainly has been done, but most of the times it has been done, it's been done, you know, from a colonial lens, you know, there was a San man from Africa who was on display at a Spain, uh, a naturalist museum in Spain for, until the I think 2003 you know the early 2000s yeah and uh, the Carnegie Natural History Museum has a a pretty kind of famous uh, taxidermy display called the it was formerly called the Arab Courier attacked by lions and it essentially is a Middle Eastern man on a camel you know being attacked by lions and so for a very long time uh, you know, scientists have known that, and, you know, museum professionals have known at the Carnegie Museum that the teeth of the man were real, like they were, so they were real human teeth. But when they did some x-ray scans to move this thing, they like realized that there's a human skull underneath as well. So there's this interesting, like, where did the skull come from? <laughs> like, was it collected with these, you know, animals while this, you know, French taxidermist was in Africa? Or was it from a French catacomb, like we just don't know the answer to this at this point. But uh, a lot of human taxidermy, you know, is really more limited to kind of mummification and, you know, things that don't really classify as taxidermy from a technical standpoint, but Mm -hmm. it's certainly been attempted, but mostly, you know, to display humans the same way we display animals, which as an anthropologist is, you know, I think a, difficult conversation that museums are only beginning to scratch the surface of having. Well, we've talked about so much about, you know, real life human bodies being on display at at world fairs and, and, and things like that. So, um, you know, we think it's even just as horrible to have a real life, you know, human be caged, but to disrespect other remains in that way. And even Bianca and I have talked about our kind of uncomfortable relationship with how, especially when you, are traveling to like European historical sites and how human remains, just bones are on display. And I know that the Natural History Museum in New York does have human remains in its collection, but I just referring to bones, I believe. Yeah, I, I don't think they have anything beyond bones. And I, I think a lot of their human remains that are kind of still in their collection that haven't been deaccessioned because of NAGPRA are really kind of ancient humans and hominins so like for their evolution hall and foster i'm not sure that we have talked about nagbra too much on the podcast would you mind giving our listeners a brief um definition of oh, what yeah, NAGPRA yes, is? yeah uh the, it's the native american graves and repatriation act it was signed in the uh 1990s but basically it gives the any federally recognized indigenous group, the right and ability to uh, repatriate, uh, I think it's human remains, like 
uh, objects of very important cultural significance and, you know, any sort of like associated funeral items back into the tribe for kind of what, so that they can kind of do what they want to do with them. And so it basically applies to any institution that receives federal funding. So, you know, all the military, you know, any kind of museum that's a federal museum or receives federal funding, and then also universities as well. Yeah, Yeah, there's this whole kind of thing. I mean, you know, human remains and displaying human remains where you kind of, with natural history museums, you know, the human remains that are displayed or, you know, that have been displayed in the past have typically been of Asian and African and indigenous peoples. And you know, there's usually not European cultural halls and natural history museums. Those are usually in history museums. So there's this interesting uh, conversation and, you know, ethical thinking that natural history museums have to do with this idea that, you know, we're displaying the other, you know, where we display animals and rocks and minerals and space objects, but we're not displaying, you know, white people mm-hmm. in that same right. way. In, I guess, in bringing it into like a modern context and trying to recontextualize that, this, like the idea of putting humans on display is horrific, of course, but we don't really think about that with animals, I suppose. So I'm wondering if that is coming into a larger light. Can you talk with us about like the creep factor of taxidermy? Because you've talked about that idea of fascination with the exotic and something that you've never seen before but is it not disturbing I suppose and like is there this idea of like a haunted presence with animals as there would be in preserving human bodies or even again like thinking about trauma and those horrors of putting humans on display like do you feel there's a kind of separation between human and animal worlds within museums Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. I mean, I think a lot of, you know, most humans in human society do have different values for humans versus animals. I mean, I think a majority of people consume some sort of animal, you know, and I think that's definitely changing now. But, you know, for a lot of human history, you know, most people were omnivores. So you kind of have to have different values for something that you're consuming, versus something that you interact with and are creating, you know, culture and society with. Um, I think in terms of the creep factor, I think there definitely is a little bit of a creep factor, uh, you know, and I think it's definitely, uh, people are, I think, are have more negative connotations of natural history museums and habitat dioramas than maybe they did in the past. And uh, Rachel Poquin, I wrote a really good book called The Breathless Zoo, where, you know, she's talking about how you we have this kind of longing for the natural world and animals and we're kind of using habitat dioramas and taxidermy to in a kind of selfish way to kind of understand you know ourselves more you know what is our relationship with the natural world if it's you know it i think it's becoming more and more of a a conflict you know we have with the natural world where it's you know something very colonial and, you know, about this manifest destiny that we're, the animals and resources are really there for us and to serve us and to help us in different ways. And so I think that, you know, habitat dioramas were maybe a little bit of a shift where it's like, you know, look at this mom, dad, and children of an animal, you know, like you have your moose family. And, you know, I think that helps people maybe understand that animals are I don't know does this make I don't think this makes any sense sorry you know it it actually doesn't it's funny that you you talk about the breathless zoo and also our our modern day zoos because there are ethical dilemmas with zoos or especially like privately owned zoos like man we all went through like the tiger king phase of the pandemic um I watched that tonight (laughs) (laughs) um but it is interesting again going back to your original uh contextualization of taxidermies and how those are operating within natural history museums how those aren't necessarily specimens that those museums are like looking to keep 
like making. They're just there to kind of maintain those specimens to preserve that. Um, but in a way, you know, zoos are are acting as preservation sites for endangered species um, and also acting as the same or functioning in the same kind of way to bring attention to animals and, and have people see those animals who might not have the means to travel to the natural world. So it is interesting how closely they are related, but how they are taking shape differently, of course, versus the living and the non-living. And museums definitely paid a little catch up with zoos because I think zoos in the early, like the mid, you know, fifties, really realized like we need to figure out a new way to contextualize ourselves as like people's relationships with zoos were changing. Mm -hmm. And I think the educational conservational method, I think, is really something that museums have kind of picked up as well, where it's like, rather than glorifying, you know, taxidermy, I think museums are trying to make sure that people know it's an educational tool and it helps people to, you know, get a more of a sense of like an animal space than just, you know, a picture or bones of an animal. Can you, this kind of makes me think of another question. Can you talk about maybe just the working relationship or the professional relationship between natural history museums and zoos? Like, is there a communication or a dialogue taking place between those kinds of institutions? Oh, as someone in more natural history, I don't, I don't know if I want to speak for zoos, but I mean, I think that there's a little bit of a rivalry and there's certainly, you know, you've, there's this ideas where zoos and natural history museums are, I think, you know, sort of cousins because they have similar values and similar, you know, ideas about what they want the public to get away, get when they go to visit them. But I think they go about it in different ways. You know, I, you hear stories about like zoos where they, they'll put like a fake snake in like an exhibit so that people can see the snake because the snake's always hiding and then <laughs> other zoos make fun of them for becoming museums. But, Ooh, zoo drama. Yeah, zoo drama. Zoo I I've never yeah. heard of that. That's interesting. I read it in a book a long time ago. Yeah, <laughs> it's just, it's one of those <laughs> things where I think with the museum, like you're, you're going to see all the animals you want to see there. Whereas I think at a yeah. zoo, you're going to see whatever animals want to be out that day. <laughs> <laughs> Museums should like rebrand, like they should like get in like, a, they should like hit the zoos a little harder and be like, yo, you want to see something? It's always out. You know, well, you know, it, it's just funny for us again to think about more like visual works of art and objects. How, as a museum educator in a program, I'm always looking to partner with the next kind of visual institution or gallery. So when we do programs, particularly with other schools, that uh, class can hit our institution and they can hit the next institution, and there's that partnership and that communication between us. So if from just from a programming standpoint, you know, you go see the breathless zoo and then the next stop is to go to the actual zoo, <laughs> you know, that in my head, that feels like a logical kind of thing that would take place. Um, but I'm perhaps sure there's, there's more of a rivalry than I anticipated. <laughs> I'm sure there's some collaboration out there too. Like I know like we published this episode and like some zoo and natural zoos and we'd be like, actually, we've had a working relationship for 10 years now. And, but I mean, I think there is this idea that, you know, when you're going to a natural history museum, you're going to see dead things. And I think mm -hmm. when you're going to a zoo, you're going to see alive things. And so I think that's like kind of, you know, connecting back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, if the natural history museums where you see the dead animals and the dead, you know, dinosaurs and fossils, you know, that's where you're going to see the dead cultures too. So you have all these cultural groups, you know, represented in natural history museums who are still around today they've just shifted from what they were pre-columbian times yeah well foster we need to ask is there anything else that you'd like to share with us about the practice of taxidermy are there any kind of fundamental questions that we have missed today anything else our listeners should know about no i think we've talked about it but you know i think one of the things is just to you know, I think think critically about what uh, how natural history museums can continue to be better, and how you know taxidermy is always going to be a part of natural history museums and you know habitat dioramas as well. But it's kind of like, what do we do to recontextualize them to make sure that they're you know creating the most value for the amount of space they take up? And I think that's a 
critical museum question for a lot of museum professionals to wrestle with and emerging museum professionals to grow into. So we have to ask you one fun question before we let you go. And I'm curious, do you love Night at the Museum? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, I, it's... (laughs) I think it's a really good movie. And I, I think that's like the thing where it's hard for me because it's like when I was a kid, I was a nerd too about museums and stuff. So I was like, that's not what American Museum of Natural History looks like. You know, where are the dioramas? <laughs> that diorama isn't there, you know? So I'm a little bit like that in terms of where it's hard for me to enjoy things where it's like the thing I research. <laughs> what about like, I don't know if you're a Friends fan, but Ross and Friends working at the Natural History. I always love like those episodes where he's like doing museum stuff. <laughs> I think like that's where like my anthropologist comes out because it's like you're like oh you're like Ross and I'm like no he's a paleontologist we're we're different we study humans not dinosaurs. It's <laughs> like that episode of Friends where like they all sit at different tables you know where like the scientists sit at one table and the guides sit at one table and then you have gift shop people (laughs) (laughs) gift shop (laughs) truly the the outcasts of the yeah museum world is is very segregated (laughs) (laughs) well is there anything that you would like to plug before we let you go today yeah so actually i've been working on this academic paper uh, for the American Anthropological Association annual meeting. Uh, I'm going to be presenting it in November. It's called Salvaging Anthropology Dioramas. And, you know, it's essentially, you know, asking a lot of the same critical questions about, you know, habitat dioramas and taxidermy in the Natural History Museum, but about the anthropology dioramas specifically, which are, you know, essentially the same in terms of like the construction, but rather than taxidermy animals, you know, you're using mannequins and cultural artifacts that you're displaying in a artificial setting with background painting. That's awesome. You'll have to share with us when it's, when it's officially released or if we can, we can see your presentation anywhere. That would be awesome. For sure. I'd definitely love to. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you both. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us and Foster for today's episode. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, all the good platforms. And we will talk to you all next Tuesday for our last Art Loween episode. Ah, bye, everyone. Bye. Art Pop Talks executive producers are me, Bianca Martucci Fink, and me, Gianna Martucci Fink. Music and sounds are by Josh Turner, and photography is by Adrian Turner. And our graphic designer is Sid Hammond.